Welcome to the Heart of Healing, the pandemic episodes. I am your host, Tom Fold. In these episodes, we'll meet loving, talented people who, while coping with their own pandemic stress, are offering understanding, compassion, love, and ways to relax and heal even under the weight of current conditions. Listen with an open heart to those who in this time of crisis are offering their hearts and talents to us all. And today, very happy to have as our guest, Dominique Poderuno, who is a coach, a teacher, and the founder of Crimson Coaching. Hello, Dominique. Hi, how are you, Tom? I am great, and I'm happy to have you here to talk about what it is you do and how you help people. So tell me, let's start by asking, what is Crimson Coaching? So Crimson Coaching is a company that I founded in 2014 after having been a full-time high school teacher for many years. I really wanted to work one-on-one with students and more closely with their families in order to address not just their academic needs as history students because um, I was a history teacher, but also their emotional needs, uh, as well as any other subject that they might have questions or problems in. So I do, I would say about 99% of the tutoring myself. And so Crimson Coaching tutors academic subjects. We do test prep for things like the SAT and ACT, and we help prepare kids and get them through the college application process. Wow, that's a lot. And, I, and it brings up a number of questions. First of all, it was nothing I ever thought of asking you, but what you said, you're a history teacher. Mm-hmm. How do you think history is going to deal with what we're going through now? Oh, gosh, I think, um, well, we're going through a lot right now. So do you mean the pandemic itself or no, other? Pandemic and political, everything uh, at once seems to be an amazing time. Yeah, I think it is an amazing time. And I think it's amazing time for the kind of, of work that you're doing, that you're doing in particular, because I do think that there's there's a shift in consciousness taking place. And I think the pandemic and political changes have brought that into higher relief. So on the one hand, the pandemic has allowed people who would never previously be connected to connect because of things like Zoom, where which we're talking over. Right. right? So for example, in, in my own practice, I have had clients just this past, just since the pandemic from South Africa, the country of Colombia, the UK and Brussels come to me. And that's something that I did a little bit of prior to the pandemic, but it's just accelerated those kinds of connections. Um, Someone comes from another country, what are they looking for? I mean, is it college things that are, you know, entrance or what are they looking for? They're usually looking for help with my international students are usually looking for help with the college application process. And sometimes the younger ones um, might be looking also for help with SAT prep, because in, for instance, in Europe, they don't take as many standardized tests as American children do. And so even the concept of like 
preparing long for an exam and sitting for that three-hour exam. I mean, they do have the IB there, but it's a very different system that right. most international kids are. So that's why they come um, looking for me. Um, but in Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, I was just asking, well, what's happening now, as I understand it, many of the colleges and the universities are not asking for SATs anymore. Is that becoming... They're, they're not. You're right. I mean, I think that that's going to be sort of... Um, it, it remains to be seen whether that will be a long-term trend. Um, so at least in the immediate future, I recommend usually that students take it. Um, in the longer term future, of course, we, you know, nobody has a crystal ball, um, but most students, American or international, do need some help with crafting their essays. And so I usually help with that, too. Well, that's, you know, that's essays that are written. And today, is most of the stuff done like Zoom? I mean, what, I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be a, a high school student trying to get into a college, although... I don't know how many people want to actually go at this moment, but still, let's say we do. I'm going to have an interview, but it's not going to be in person. No, and even before, I mean, not all colleges interview in person, but the college application process is really different than it was even 20, 25 years ago. So, um, you know, the pandemic has just made a lot of those changes more difficult. Um, so now, for instance, students really need to show interest in the college that they're applying to. And that's often really difficult in a global pandemic, right? And so um, students have to kind of pivot to show their interest in college in more virtual online ways. And how are they, when you, the students that you work with, how are they about being on Zoom? About, I mean, in, some people do very well in interviews and some do not. But now it changes, I imagine, when you're doing that interview on Zoom. I think that kids are really adaptable and they're fine. I, I do think that the tough thing is because now that students are often in virtual school all day long, and then if they have a virtual tutoring session after, you know, there's a lot of Zoom fatigue that I, even as an adult, feel. So I do feel feel for the kids. Um, but I would say that virtual tutoring is very different than virtual school because if I'm dealing with just one student one-to-one, -one, right, and you're just talking to me and you're, you know, a 13-year-old whose attention might wander during a class, when you have 19 or 29 other classmates with you, it's very easy to kind of uh, zone out when you're in a classroom, but it's very difficult when you're one-on-one -on -one with a tutor, right? Because right. It's, uh, I'll say, um, hello. So hello. Are, are you still there? Did you, did you mute yourself? What happened? <laughs> exactly. So there's really nowhere to hide when they're with me. Um, but that's sort of the, the virtue of tutoring as opposed to uh, being in the online classroom with lots of other kids. My daughter, you've been teaching for a while. When, how many years have you been teaching? Or when I started, well, you know, I like to say I've been tutoring since I was 13. Um, <laughs> you had sisters and brothers or something? <laughs> 
No, well, I do have two sisters and brothers, um, but this was another student. Uh, uh, I was 13 years old, the student was nine, and I was just doing it as like volunteer for this little community organization. So that was, gosh, 36 years ago. Um, okay. But I've been teaching as a certified te classroom teacher uh, since 1997. Right, and that's a goodly amount of time. Yeah. What are you seeing in the way of differences uh, in your students that you've been tutoring? Um, the big noticeable change I feel like in lots of students that I've seen in the last 10 years, as opposed to those when I started teaching is um, the rise of a lot of mental health issues among students. Mm. Um, there's a lot more anxiety in particular and in particular among girls. Um, you know, I don't know whether it's a cause uh, as a result of social media and online bullying, but um, the pressure to be perfect I think, or, or or to present oneself as perfect is is much more prevalent now. I mean, it's not that you would never see that, but you wouldn't see it in like almost every kid you taught in the '90s. Yeah. Now I feel like ev almost every I won't say every single, but many, many, many girls uh, that I've worked one on one with, I see this in now. That also could be because now I'm working with them one-on-one -on -one versus it's much more difficult when you're a classroom teacher to notice that kind of thing because you're you're paying attention to so many things at the same time right. while yeah. trying to teach the French Revolution, for example. Um, but I, I mean, I'm not the only one who's remarked on this, right? There are people who, psychologists who have written books on this, on the rise of anxiety in this generation. And it's something that I, I feel really badly about. And, and I definitely address, try to address in my work when it comes out. How, how do you address it? I guess that's my question. What, what can you offer to, to help these students with their anxiety. I mean, you're not a therapist, I understand that, but right. your, a teacher is a little bit like a therapist sometimes. Yeah, so I always, you know, I usually go to the, the parent first because it's a, it's a really delicate line, right? I'm dealing almost always with minors and, um, right. you know, uh, even though, you know, we're sort of, we're not in the same physical space anymore. You never want to do anything that would make the child or the parents feel uncomfortable. So, you know, sometimes, say even if it's not anxiety, sometimes I notice ADD or ADHD in a kid. And again, I'm not a trained psychiatrist. So I only get these sort of instinctual hunches from my more than two decades of working with kids. But whatever it is that I'm seeing, I'll check in with the parents and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing in, let's say, Annie or Jack. Um, do you notice that too? And uh, sometimes the parents will say yes. And I say, look, you know, I'm not a trained mental health professional, but um, 
I think it might be X. Um, maybe you want to have another trained mental health professional run some tests and just see what might be going on. And I have to say, I mean, I've usually been right on in, in whatever I've sort of informally diagnosed. And lots of times the, the family decides not to medicate and I totally respect that decision. And then we might work with, you know, I'm also a yoga and meditation teacher. So maybe we'll work with um, breathing exercises or visualization exercises or journaling. Um, you know, in addition to the kind of more intellectual things that I'm doing, because sitting for something like the SAT is as much a, a mental, emotional um, game as knowing, I don't know, algebra and geometry, right? They're all the facts, yes. Um, right. The emotional stability, the, the ability to be there, be present and pay attention is very important. I would think that meditation and visualization would be very helpful, particularly today. I mean, it always has been, I believe, but today in this other time, when you're, looking, when you're doing the Zoom interview or the Zoom work or producing something for them that shows the school, whatever you are, who you are, you really have to be kind of centered in who you are. And that takes getting some, some comfort. And it sounds like you offer some of that com good comfort. Yeah, I'd like to think so. And I mean, even for kids who don't kind of have those same sort of, you know, if they don't have anxiety or ADD or whatever, whatever it is, just if they're just a, you know, teenager who's going through uh, teenage angst during a pandemic, you know, sometimes it's just, um, hey, you know, how are things going? How's how's uh you know school or you look a little tired or you know maybe we need to end a little early today if you're not feeling like i just feel like it's really important to be tuned into what the child is going through because if you're not tuned in to that you know you could be uh the greatest mathematician in the world but you're never going to get a kid to learn algebra if if you you if you're not meeting the child where they are emotionally, I, I think. Well, that makes total sense. And when you mentioned the word algebra, I go, you would have had trouble with me. Uh, but you have to settle me down or calm me down because of a, a, an innate belief at the time when I was in high school that, that somehow that was impossible to do. But to write a person, well, I guess what I'd say is what I hear you doing is something wonderful, which I appreciated with teachers who did this for me. You listened. You listen to what they're saying and you hear them and you see them and to be heard and seen is vital and i imagine it's vital to learning i think so and, and it's also i believe in them you know i had a, a really like heartwarming success story um and just got um a a really sweet note from this student who said dear dominique thank thank you not only for your bar mitzvah gifts because i sent him a little something <laughs> when he got his bar mitzvah but also for everything you have done for me in the past couple of years i never would have made it this far in my education had it not been for you love and then the student's name and this was a student who in seventh grade 
had been in a school for kids with learning disabilities for uh, several years and was only at about a third grade math level. And his mom wanted him to get into the local uh, mainstream uh, middle school for students without learning disabilities. So in order to do that, he needed to go up four years of math. And I am proud to say that now after about 15 months of working with him, he's not only at this mainstream school, he's getting 80s and 90s in his eighth grade math class at grade level. That's absolutely wonderful. Well, now I got a question though. You're a, you start out as a history teacher. How come you're so successful as a math teacher? You know, it's funny. So I was a kid who, when I was a, when I was a kid, I hated math, but I think it's, you know, unfortunately I, I think like a lot of girls got steered away from it. I had in calculus, I had a sexist math teacher who would make sexist jokes all the time, but this is, that was the eighties when you could do sort of thing, things like that. And I got turned off from it, but I always did very well in it. And when I began tutoring SAT for, for a private company in the 90s, I just did verbal. And then when I was a teacher at Horace Mann, a, a colleague of mine said, oh, I tutor both. You know, I tutor math and verbal. And then I thought, well, sure, why can't I do that? I did always really well in math. So I just kind of re refreshed algebra and geometry. And luckily there's no calculus needed on the SAT. <laughs> um, but sometimes I think, you know, it's like this thing that yogis will call the beginner's mind. Right. I think sometimes not being an expert in math I can convey really simply to the kids, okay, this is all you need to do to figure this algebra out, right? We don't need to be Einstein. Um, we just need to, you know, divide 2x by 2 or whatever. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's, that's quite wonderful. I just, you made me think of something. I, my daughter, um, who's now in her 20s, was, uh, when she was in middle school, she had a math teacher that made a lot of difference. And what he did, he gave him homework and he would do um, things on email, send cartoons that he created about the, about the math problem. And the way to look at math through a cartoon was like, wow. I mean, it's not just the numbers on a piece of paper anymore. So I guess the attitude and how you bring it to somebody and, and therefore I, I know my daughter was much more receptive and much more open to doing the, you know, the work. And didn't, and didn't, I guess what it was, no, I'm, I'm getting this clear myself right now. It, she didn't think it was impossible. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, that and, and believing in the student, right? Like this student that I was talking about that went up for grade levels in one year, you know, he had always been told at this school for kids with learning disabilities that he couldn't do math. And I could tell as soon as I met him that this was a bright boy. He does have learning difficulties, right? There's no doubt about that. He does, he's challenged with certain things, but he's bright despite those challenges. And I would say to him, look, you can do this. 
And I think having a teacher that believes in you, um, sometimes when you don't even believe in yourself, can can really make a big difference. I, I think it, it's made a big difference for him. I agree. I think it, I think the opposite happens also, and this is what you were alluding to also when you had a sexist teacher or something. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you're told you can't do something or you're doing it wrong, I, I think of myself again, I, use, I have to use myself, is I had a father who was very, very good at math and music. I mean, those things tend to go together, I guess. And he would give me math problems and I would give him the answers. The problem that he, we came up with was he would say, how did you do that? And I would say, I don't know. And he would be upset about that. Oh. And instead of doing what I now understand would be, let's talk about it. Let's see how, because your mind is clearly telling you the answers. Yeah, right. And, and there's a method to that. Let's find it. Because um, that, that brings me to another idea. And I wonder how you feel about this, that barring certain you know, things that happen to somebody in terms of physical or uh, defects or something, it seems to me that most people have it within them to do things like learning, to learn math, to learn reading, to learn a foreign language. They may not believe it, but is that been your experience? I do. And what I always tell students is that, look, there are always going to be things that you are better at and then other things, right? Like I would, I would joke with them and I would say, you know, hand-eye coordination was something I always struggled with, right? And, and so, uh, I would never, you know, be able to play for the New York Yankees, right? Aside from the fact that I'm a woman, right? But eventually, if I worked at it enough, I bet that I could hit a baseball, right? I might not hit it far. I might not be the best person, but I could do it. And I, I think the same thing, you know, in like learning foreign languages is, is a perfect example. Like I was also a person who was blessed with, I can learn languages really quickly. So I speak four languages. Um, and, but I know that many people struggle with it. However, it would be just like me with the baseball, right? If I really wanted to play baseball, I would need to practice a lot, but I could do it, right? And it's the same thing with learning a foreign language, I think. You could do it. Um, you just might have to put in more time than I might, right? But right. if you if you have good hand-eye coordination, I'm going to have to put in a lot more time to learn how to hit a baseball correctly than right. someone else. Well, then you will need, as with your students, somebody who's teaching you, who's calm, who's compassionate, who says, "Yes, now take another swing." Right now, do this, and you can. If you just try this, you might do it. And as opposed to something, you know, oh, it's not good enough. You can't do this, or something like that. Right, exactly. And I think you know, using yourself as an example. Like sometimes I tell my students, you know, I didn't learn how to ride a bicycle till I was thirty-four years old. So anything is possible. Anything's possible. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's never too late. Speaking of anything being possible, how is it? that you teach, how do you teach history? Many, many people feel that history is boring. And yet I don't happen to agree with that because I like certain, I like historical things, but that's me. But many people say, oh, it's just dates and I got to memorize dates. When was the Spanish Armada or something like that? How do you, 
How did you teach or how do you like to teach history when you're teaching history? Um, so I'm lucky to still be teaching history uh, as an adjunct assistant professor at CUNY, um, the City University of New York. So that, that I, you know, my PhD is in history. So I, even when I started Crimson Coaching and I got to do a lot of different types of teaching there, I never wanted to totally leave the history teaching. Um, and it's funny, you know, my, my history teaching has really evolved a lot since 1997. And it's also evolved in response to my students. So my students at Bronx Community College, many of them have never had American history before because they didn't grow up in this country. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, um, it, I also teach a writing intensive course. So now that I'm teaching, um, it's called the flipped classroom model where um, at home, they do the quote unquote lecture part where they listen to videos that I've pre-recorded, right? right. And okay. on the content. And then in either in person during non-COVID times or now when we meet, you know, um, online, we'll be working the entire semester on the different components of an analytical essay. Um, and, you know, some people will might say, well, that you're not really teaching history, right? But for me, it's much more important that my students come out of this foundational class knowing how to write an analytical essay, which they can then take when they get their bachelor's after they, they're with me, um, then knowing the year Jamestown was founded, right? You can go Google when Jamestown. Yes, well, today we can Google all of that stuff. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But you can't Google really how you could Google how to write an analytical essay, but you're only going to get so far if you don't have an expert at that guiding you and giving you feedback. And so I've always been the sort of there's, you know, in, in, education schools, they say there's two types of teachers. There's the sage on the stage or the guide on the side. Oh, and, I love that. Yeah. And I've always liked to be the guide on the side, guiding, right? Um, right. And having them learn skills. Um, and, you know, I have to say it hasn't, it hasn't always has that um, to people who are more sage on the stage type of teachers. And I've had bosses like that. Um, it's sometimes they don't think that you're teaching when you're doing that. But I actually think it's, to me, it's the best kind of teaching to do that. Yes, well, I'll tell you, you bring to mind a story of mine. I was an adjunct teacher at NYU and was teaching advertising because that's what I had done for years and had a class and, and my whole class I had to talk to the dean and make it all straight. It was all books written by people who had done the advertising, David Ogilvy and other people mm -hmm. who had actually done it and instead of a theory. And so I had these books and people were reading it. And I had a bunch of students, not, not all the students, many students loved it, but I had a couple of students and not to be too prejudicial, but they were Asian women, mm -hmm. which I think is a certain category who said, you're not teaching. And I said, no, I'm not teaching. I am showing you how it's done by the professionals. And they just said, no, you got to, you're supposed to be the expert. You're supposed to tell me everything I need to know. And I didn't want to be that kind of a teacher. And I don't think you're that kind of a teacher either. 
Yeah. You know, I once had a boss ask me, um, in, in a really kind of scolding way, I, Dominique, I don't understand why you don't let your students know that you're the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And I said, well, first of all, I might not be the smartest person <laughs> in the room. Uh, and second of all, my job as a teacher is to make every kid feel like he or she is the smartest person in the Absolutely. room. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Did he appreciate that or didn't understand a word you were saying? No, no. He let me go from that job. I see. I, but I think you're better off, actually. I am. I'm a lot happier than I was teaching at that job. Yeah, it was the only job I've ever been let go from. And it is because I got to a point, you know, in my own development as a teacher, I was in my early 40s at that point, And I had been teaching for quite a long time. And we really had very, he was the sage on the stage type of teacher. And he didn't understand why I didn't get up there and lecture. And, and uh, I just, I can't be that kind of teacher. So um, it, was, it was for the best. It was for the best. Well, yep. speaking of what's for the best, what do you hope will happen, will come out of this COVID experience? What, what, what good will come from this? And what do you wish for once we're past this time? You know, what I wish for um, in education, I feel like would be, um, what I think is, is remarkable is the way that teachers and students by, by sheer necessity have been forced to be really flexible and learn new things. Um, I myself, uh, you know, I've been teaching online since 2016 because I like technology and I like learning new things. Um, not everybody does, um, but I think that it's great to be um, sometimes forced, maybe not as far out of our comfort zone as we currently are, but it's great to have, to be a little bit pushed outside your comfort zone now and then. So I would hope that the field of education remains open to experimentation and um, uses what works and student results to guide future practice. Um, I think that would be my, my hope for education. Um, and, and that would help students to be who they are, I think, in the experimentation to look at what other than standardized testing can we do to make education really work for our students. Right, right. And my hope for sort of the world is, it's funny, I was thinking about this on um, Martin Luther King Day this year. Is So the one, um, not, not the one, but one of the primary source documents I read every semester with my students at Bronx Community College is Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Right. And in one of the first paragraphs, right before the famous line where he says, injustice everywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. everywhere yes. He talks about there is an interrelatedness of everyone, right? Mm, right. And I felt like, gosh, there is nothing like a global pandemic to show us how interrelated we are, right? Because absolutely, every human being on earth is going through the same thing to a lesser or greater extent right now. And just to 
you know, I, I would hope that that would translate into care for others by wearing masks, right? By social distancing. It's sometimes a little um, depressing to think that not everybody has made that connection, but hopefully eventually they will. Well, I, I remember when you say that, I remember before the pandemic, well before it, when I saw people, and mostly they were Asian people, wearing masks, I would say, what, what's that about? And I had no idea. And today, I really have a problem when I'm walking the streets and someone's walking at me without a mask. And I want to wear one to say, not only that I'm going to take care of myself and you, but I want to support. I'm supporting. This mask says I'm supporting the world. Right. It, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And this interconnectedness that we're talking about is we can support everybody in their various ways. Um, and we could go on and on. What you have learned, what I have learned about ways we're connected and how if we continue to remember and don't just forget two days after the, after the virus has left us, right. uh, if we continue to remember, we'll be able to continue to grow. And that's yeah. what I hear you doing. That's quite wonderful. And by the way, we're almost at the end of our time here. So before we finish, um, if somebody who's been listening to this would like to get in touch with you, would like to learn more from you, how would the best way for them to reach you be? Sure. So um, anybody can go to my website to learn more about me, which is www.crimsoncoaching.com. And I'm going to spell that out because sometimes people don't know. It's C-R-I-M like Mary, S-O-N like Nancy, right. and then just the word coaching.com. And if they like what they see and maybe want to just ask me a question about um, my services, there's a contact page there and then they can, they can, uh, that'll wind up in my inbox. Well, that's wonderful, Dominique, because I think, I hope people will call you because I think just having a conversation with you has been wonderful. And I oh, well, appreciate you too, so much for being on the show. Thank, thank you. Thank you. This has been a really nice little afternoon treat. Thanks. It is something we need to do each afternoon, treat ourselves to something fun. So I thank agree. you for being here. And I also want to thank our audience for listening to the Heart of Healing, the pandemic episodes. Thank you all. <laughs>